You are listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate. We wish to acknowledge that we are on the territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations lands, which lands were previously occupied by the Seneca and Huron-Wendat First Nations. <clears throat> For the first reading, anyone who values truth should stop worshipping reason. Psychologists have discovered that reasoning is not good at finding the truth. Conscious verbal reasoning is really good at confirming. Individual reasoning is post hoc and justificatory. Individual reasoning is not reliable because of confirmation bias. The only cure for confirmation bias is engagement with other people. The second reading, (coughs) pardon me, there are terms that, while their processes surely are included in experience, are anything but substitutes for it. Feel and think. The main problem with these terms is that each seems to exclude the other, or at least downplay it. The special benefit of the word experience is that it includes all senses and faculties mentioned above and more. In fact, a significant <clears throat> pardon me, a significant facet of many experience is precisely their aroma and taste. Some experiences also engage the actual sense of touch, feel in, in the precise first meaning of that term. <clears throat> I apologize. The scholar approached the master seeking enlightenment. Can you offer me a revelation greater than anything I can find in the writings, he eagerly asked. Go out into the rain, the master said. Lift up your head on your hands to the heavens, and you will discover the first great revelation. The scholar did so. Returning, he told the master, I went out into the pouring rain, lifted up my head and my hands to heaven, and all I got from my efforts was water flowing down my neck. I feel like a complete fool. Well, the master said, that's quite a revelation for the first day, isn't it? 
What is the what, me, what is the relationship between narrative and myth? Myth often presents itself as narrative. Does that somehow invalidate it? Perhaps for some individuals. But if we remember that a myth is something that has never happened because it is always happening. The narrative wrapping may be the deep truth, best alias, offered as wisdom for the journey. I have the privilege of introducing our guest speaker this morning. Some of you will recognize him. Josie has been here with us uh, once before. Yes, once before. Um, and so I'm just going to share a little bit of his background with you. He's a researcher, a journalist, and author of Beyond Belief, Agnostic Musings for 12-Step Life, which is a secular daily reflection book geared towards persons in recovery from drug, alcohol, or process addictions. Uh, much of Joe's research has been in the history of addiction, mental health treatment, and communities with a keen interest in agnostics and atheists in 12-step-oriented programs, as well as other underrepresented populations, such as the LGBTQ plus community, youth, and ethnic minorities. Uh, Joe has been invited to speak with addiction treatment professionals in Canada and across the U.S. about stigma, microaggression, human rights, and changing demographics. Joe hosts two radio podcasts, and he writes about music, finance, and billiards. I found that interesting. Hopefully we'll hear more about that. Uh, drugs, sports, music, and finance, these have more in common than you might think. So please join me in welcoming our speaker this morning, Josie. Good morning. Uh, so uh, I have to lead with uh, my weakness my expertise is uh, the holes in my resume. Uh, I'm, uh, my expertise is being uh, downtrodden, uh, an alcoholic, an addict, a member of uh, the 12-step community. And um, uh, it, it, there, there's something about uh, um, the, the story we were told about the uh, seeker going to the uh, wise old sage and wanting more than uh, is written in the uh, in the uh, text, and uh, I, I have that problem too. And people keep telling me, Joe, just read the black, right? You know, <laughs> it's all there. And um, but uh, it was a humbling experience uh, for the seeker to uh, learn that uh, he was a fool, and uh, in. In the community of uh, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, for instance, and some of the other 12-step fellowships that uh, seek to help in a peer-to-peer -peer basis, there are no experts, there are no counselors, uh, there are no uh, preachers, there are no uh, uh, leaders. Um, it's just uh, one alcoholic uh, talking to another. And uh, the identity is in, in the weakness, not in the uh, strength. Yes, 
some people find recovery and other people are coming to say, well, how do you amass days of uh, sober time? And uh, you can learn about that. But first, you have to identify. And the uh, identifying is with uh, um, the shared uh, weakness. Um, so, uh, so last time I was here, I talked a little bit about uh, uh, the agnostics and atheists in AA and their little struggle being accepted in the larger whole. Um, part of uh, the tenets of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is the uh, idea that uh, we are powerless over alcohol and that uh, uh, salvation comes from the help of a prayer-answering, sobriety-granting higher power uh, to which uh, each is left to, uh, um, you know, understand or fabricate in their, in their own consciousness. And, um, but not everybody feels that way. Some people uh, seek help from an educational point of view, not a, a spiritual or a supernatural point of view. And Alcoholics Anonymous uh, does uh, see itself as a very open and inclusive organization. And it endeavors to do that. It's structured to do that. But individuals aren't always as... Uh, um, open-mindedness doesn't always come as easy to them. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous is a place where they will tell you there are no rules, so everyone's included. And there, while there are no rules, there's people lining up to explain them to you. <laughs> and uh, this is, uh, like our story, uh, is uh, very similar to uh, the struggles, not only in uh, the uh, United Church, but th through the whole spectrum of sort of spiritual seeking, uh, sort of orthodoxy, uh, sort of uh, giving way to uh, broader ways of looking at things. And um, in my uh, adventures um, in sort of, uh, I mean, there was just some uh, pushback from uh, the more religious uh, members of Alcoholics Anonymous who thought that, uh, you know, it isn't it. If you take the it out of it, that's not AA, right? So there was a big discussion, what is it? Is AA a book, or is it a program of recovery, or is it a fellowship of peers? And uh, and that was a discussion worth having. It's uh, the the difficulties and differences are page eight news now, and uh, and AA has always had a history of uh, wanting to be inclusive and struggling with every at every turn. The first women in Alcoholics Anonymous were not well welcomed. The first LGBTQ members, the first African Americans, uh, the first atheists and agnostics, uh, all seen as uh, sort of threatening to the larger whole in some way. And uh, then eventually, as uh, truth has its three phases, uh, you know, all great truth is first uh, ridiculed. Oh, that's silly. <laughs> you can't do it that way. That, that's not how the world works. And then it's uh, violently opposed, and then it's seen as uh, obvious. 
And uh, so it, uh, even while it was obvious that there were LGBTQ uh, groups of Alcoholics Anonymous and it was obvious that there were women's meetings and obvious that there were young people's meetings, atheists and agnostic meetings, that's just going a little bit too far. So last time I was here, I talked a little bit about that because we were in the midst of that. And it's reached the third stage that any truth goes through where obviously there's agnostic and atheist meetings. Why wouldn't there be? And um, uh, so I want to talk today a little bit about, um, uh, well, the next book I'm threatening on writing. (laughs) And, uh, you know, like, if you... If you say, well, I want to wait until I get all the research done, um, you know, uh, you're going to get into a bit of trouble there because uh, you, you never know at all. Um, but I talked about leading with weakness. And one of the things that makes it uh, easy for me to sort of uh, be more empathetic to others, especially when they hold a different view than I hold, is to think of how little I know. I'll borrow from uh, uh, Catherine Schultz, who wrote a book called Being Wrong. And I recommend it to you. There's nothing more liberating than being given permission to be wrong. It it makes your world a bigger world uh, when you think it's this and you find out there's that as well. There's a backyard to the house. How about that? And, uh, you know, it opens up possibilities. But who here knows what it is to uh, the feeling that comes with being wrong? Okay. So, so give me some examples of the feeling of being wrong. Embarrassment. Shame. Frustration. Okay. I, I've lured you into a little bit of a trap there. Because those are the feelings of realizing I'm wrong. It's embarrassing. You know, I feel ashamed. I should have known, right? But when I am wrong, the feeling I have is I feel I'm right. (laughs) You know, when I'm on my way to uh, uh, West Hill United and going the wrong way on Kingston Road, the faster I go won't get me here any quicker. (laughs) And if I uh, am wrong, I know I'm right. I know I'm going in the right direction. And therein lies uh, the difficulty. Um, So I I found something about truth. Um, The only problem with it is all of the different versions of it. But then there's what I know. I find that, for me, anyway, you might relate to this too, there's four areas of uh, what I know. There's what I know I do know. I know I can speak English. I know I write poorly. (laughs) Uh, There's what I know that I don't know. I can't speak Chinese. I know that. I'm not going to get trapped, uh, you know, thinking I can speak Chinese when I can't. But there's also what I don't know 
that I don't know. When I'm driving the wrong way to West Hill United, I don't know that I don't know. That's, that's a, this is a problem area for me, and it leads to great embarrassment. There's also what I don't know, I do know. Intuition. Sometimes at work, I come up with an idea above my pay grade. It just comes from somewhere. Some of the greatest songs come from this, I don't know where it came from kind of thing, right? It just sort of, sometimes uh, I don't know uh, what to say to a friend who is uh, suffering a loss. And my lips start moving and out it comes. And I think, well, that was, that was pretty good. <laughs> Where did that come from? So there's this whole, uh, you know, sort of knowledge I have that is uh, more intuitive than, than rational or reasoning. So, so the, the knowing that I know I know is just such a little bit of what's going on in the world. Uh, it really helps me realize that um, uh, as a friend of mine in recovery... Uh, once uh, uh, shared with me uh, the way he deals with things when he's so sure he's sure, right? He always likes to ask himself, um, okay, so this happened and this happened and, and, and obviously it means that. He asks himself, well, what else could this mean? And sometimes uh, new possibilities open up that maybe you don't see everything. Um, I'll uh, autograph these after if anybody wants them for their uh, home collection. If there's, a, if there's a huge demand for them, uh, we'll put them up to auction, and I'm sure we can find a great, great uh, uh, source for them. Um, but um, worldviews, you know, uh, the, the big questions of the universe are often looked at on sort of a, a linear basis. Like, do you believe in a supernatural uh, explanation or worldview? Or do you believe in a natural worldview, strictly sort of scientific, ones and zeros? Uh, there, even the, there's the known and the unknown, but all of it, even if it isn't known, it can be known and it can be explained. And then somewhere in the middle is lost the, the sort of agnostic and the problem with this linear sort of approach is it, 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 it makes this a very weak position. You can have a pretty strong uh, non-believer, and they can be very outspoken about it. And uh, we know what they sound like. <laughs> and uh, they fight for freedom from religion, and, and uh, uh, they, they feel very strongly about what they know to be true. You can have a very strong believer who it's just so obvious to them. How can you not believe? Look at this flower, Joe. Who could create that? You, you know, how can you not believe? And they can have a very strong opinion. But that's left the agnostic in the middle having, you know, sort of no position at all. It seems like it's almost an um, unexamined uh, position. But there is a very strong agnostic position. 
I don't know if you know what it is. It's, I don't know, and you don't either. Okay, bidding for that one will just start at like $5, I think. <laughs> um, uh, but we won't be, uh, we won't be uh, sort of uh, emerging past the lines and circles. Um, so I, I think in, in trying to get along with other people, in trying to uh, be empathetic of them and not judgmental of their worldviews, of trying to identify and not compare, I find it's better to look at uh, people's worldviews, mine, my limited worldview, and others, their limited worldview, um, in sort of a more quadrilateral or uh, two-dimensional way. So... Um, some people ha- hold a natural worldview. Now, you might call uh, that, the opposite of that would be a supernatural worldview. Who's been to British Columbia? Yeah, their license plate, supernatural BC. I, that's a very positive. Uh, I come from Quebec. Uh, je me souviens. I remember when it was good. <laughs> and and now most people uh, sort of talk about their worldview in a rational way, like, uh, you know, uh, the, in a reasoning way. And uh, um, some of the readings offered here uh, by Ernie Kurtz talked about um, uh, feeling and thinking and how they sometimes... Uh, sort of contradict each other. Uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, wrote that great book, um, uh, The uh, Righteous Mind, How Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And that uh, the problem with our reasoning brain is it isn't a truth seeker. It's a confirmation seeker. It wants to confirm what we believe to be true. And uh, so it's blind to evidence that doesn't support my liberal point of view when I'm uh, in debate with a more conservative uh, uh, person who, you know, clearly, you know, should save time and see it my way. Uh, But these, I don't believe, are uh, rational positions. They're intuitive positions. And, but we, we explain it in a rational way, and I, I would, so, so that adds sort of an east and west, and I would call this concrete thinkers. And uh, over here would be abstract thinkers. And you can use other words. You don't need to use my words. You can use uh, uh, believers, non-believers, uh, Theists, atheists, over here you could say uh, binary thinkers and uh, uh, complex thinkers. You know, use whatever words you like. Um, I try to use neutral words because, uh, you know, uh, you use words like uh, believer or God or uh, atheist, and those are, are packed full of emotion. People have an attitude uh, that, that sort of comes with that. So I try to find the most neutral words possible. And most of the great debates 
I don't know if you've wasted your time on YouTube the way I have, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the great theological scholars uh, with the sort of new atheists, the Sam Harris's versus the, you know, whoever's from, you know, uh, uh, you know the uh, religious universities, and they're debating. They they come from this sort of concrete point of point of view where absolutely it is or absolutely it isn't, and it's a very binary type of decision that it can't be both. It's one or it's the other. But to anyone who lives on the abstract side of that, they probably won't watch the whole debate because their conclusion is you can keep talking all you like, but unknown, unknowable. You guys are on a fool's errand. And it's usually guys. It's usually the men in, in the debates. And uh, because from an abstract point of view, it's not uh, a yes or a no. So if someone has a, a supernatural worldview and it's abstract, well, it's, they're going to be uh, a somethingist, right? There is something. The uh, actual explanation given by modern-day religion might not satisfy them. There might be something that they would hook their wagon to, but there might not be. But they intuitively feel there is something beyond the ones and zeros, the spaces in between, you get down to the molecules of the human being, there's a huge gap between them. We find out we know less about the universe than we did in the 60s, all of this gray matter. So, you know, the, it's, it, if there is a material world, there is probably an immaterial or a spiritual world. It just intuitively makes sense to them. Describing it and explaining it isn't, isn't important to them, isn't necessary. Again, it's a fool's errand. If you have a natural worldview and you're abstract, uh, you would probably be what I love to call an apatheist. Don't know. Don't care. Can we talk about something else? Go, Leafs, go. Uh, you know, something, anything. You know, uh, you know, the environment. Can we talk about, you know, something more interesting? And um, so, so the, if you're in this position, you, you sort of look over the fence at the people with the, the concrete uh, world way of reasoning and debating over, you know, uh, an explanation of how the universe works. And you just, like, like it's just like a broken record to you, right? You know, uh, you just can't get excited about it. And and if you have a supernatural uh, sort of leaning, you know, you you just you know, wh why do they need to? Uh, why are they fighting over? They're they're talking about the same thing. It's just uh, there's a. I had a, a, a an unexpected colleague in my. Um, efforts to sort of help unite. I mean, w when you get into things about worldviews in an organization like Alcoholics Anonymous, and I can only draw on my own personal experience, you can either be an agitator or an ambassador. It's, all, it's more fun being an agitator because, you know, you just, you know, knee-jerk reactions, just the witty comebacks, it's quite satisfying. Uh, being an ambassador, it's, uh, 
you know, it just requires a little more sober second thought and uh, a little more um, empathy, which that's hard. Um, Okay, this one I'm really liking. This we might start at $10, yeah. (laughs) And you would think, okay, so everybody's just one of four, right? Maybe some of you have already started uh, thinking about all the people you know in your life, the last argument you were in. Oh, well, I'm an abstract uh, supernaturalist, and they're clearly a concrete uh, naturalist, and you know you might be able to sort of pinpoint them. But um, within this, there are um, we all have personalities. The the big five in personalities are something called ocean. And that's just, you know, uh, it makes it easier for people without PowerPoint to remember what they are, right? Uh, it, sometimes it's spelled in Canada, canoe, C-A-N-O-E, but, but I'll, I'll use the American one. And, and in these things, this is openness. How open am I to new experiences? Do I always drive to... Uh, my meeting exactly the same way? Or do I try something different, right? You know, do I just go to the theater and see what's on when I get there? Or do I have to have a plan? And, and none of us are at zero in openness to new experiences, and none of us are at a hundred in openness to new experiences, because the most spontaneous of us always shave from the left side of the face and then the right side of the face, or, or they have some, you know, sort of hard and fast uh, way of doing things. But what differentiates us is our openness, and people who are high in openness to new experience really find people who are close to new experiences really frustrating. Um, someone talked about driving across the country with their son. I call that window time. You know, I I had a chance to talk to my son. Uh, You know, uh, uh, his mother lived in Stratford. I lived in Toronto. So we always had like two hours each way of window time. Just, you know, no pressure, right? Just whatever comes to mind, you talk about it. You get tired of talking about it, you find a channel on the radio. And and it's just, it's, uh, it's how guys, you know, guys do guys. (laughs) <laughs> and it's a, a great way to communicate. So he and I, uh, um, when he turned 10, I wanted to show him Canada. I wanted to go to all of the national parks all across Canada. I wanted uh, to climb uh, Mount Bordeaux in uh, Alberta. The first time I did that as an adult, I just felt like, you know, it felt like such an accomplishment, and it's such a beautiful view, and I wanted to take him there, and there were things I'd been telling him about. His grandmother was from Saskatchewan, and, you know, so so we, we went on this, and then uh, my uh, girlfriend uh, couldn't take the whole four weeks off, but she flew out to BC and came back with us. And Jesse and I, my son and I, we're kind of run by the seat of the pants kind of travelers, right? You know, just sort of get in the car and go. Uh, if you get tired, either pitch the tent or find a motel, right? It's, or drive through the night, easy peasy, right? And uh, Mady, uh, we, we start driving out of Vancouver. So where are we staying tonight? 
Oh, well, I don't know. Let's just see what happens. You haven't booked a campsite? No, no. But what if they're full, right? So um, now she's spontaneous too, but, but her and I were very different on this sort of openness to new experiences type of scale. The second one is conscientiousness. Uh-oh. No spell check. Conscientious. <laughs> okay, so conscientious-ish. Okay, I, I'm not quite sure on the spelling. Um, this one we might just be taking bids on when we're done. Um, so how conscientious, how detail-oriented are people? And people who uh, are on opposite sides of the scale drive each other nuts on this. It's not important. Just send it the way it is. No, I've got to reprint this letter because the comma. You know, just put it in with pen. No, it's you know, and it's going to be a, a big fight. And then E is how extroverted. Extroversion, uh, and and so no one is completely introvert. No one is completely extrovert. But depending where you fall in this sort of personality characteristic, when we look at worldviews, who are the ones out there leading the charge? It's the extroverts. You know, you can have six people all sitting and having this heated discussion about, you know, uh, you know, trying to get to the bottom of the big uh, existential questions of the universe. Uh, where do we come from? What does it all mean? And there's a couple of people not saying a thing. They might be the most educated. They might be the most considered on the topic. But they're introverted. They're, they, you're going to have to get it out of them. Uh, where the extrovert, um, uh, what, what are you talking about? I got an opinion. Just tell me what the subject is, and I'll. Uh, uh, and if it's my turn to talk, I'll get started. Um, and how amiable. Like, can't we all just... I didn't spell that right either. Uh, can't we all just get along? That's an amiable, right? You know, but not everybody is 100 on the amiable scale. Uh, some people are down uh, uh, a little bit lower. But it, it's really easy for other people to see, why can't we all just get along uh, when other people who are more conscientious because there are principles at stake here. And the principles are more important than my, you know, friendship with you. Or, or you can't compromise with the devil. You can't, you know, y your principles are so strong that you can't just find something in the middle. And, uh, and then neuroticism. Uh, neuroticism. I'm a writer, not a speller, okay? <laughs> um, and, and none of us are a zero on this neuroticism scale. And none of us are a, a hundred. None of us who made it here today. Anyway, uh, there's medicine for that. Uh, but um, so, like, you know, some people are just sort of carefree, easygoing. And other people, well, what's the weather going to be like when we get there? Just, you know, if we, do you know how many people crash on the highway? What do you mean you were just going to go for a drive, right? You know, you know like that is just, it's not a right way or a wrong way to be. But 
our personality types are so different when we go, where are we on, you know, a one to a hundred in each of these things. There are tests for these online if you want. The internet isn't all bad. But you add that to the sort of backdrop of, uh, this is still, I think, my favorite. I don't know about you guys, but, but so, so everybody within this sort of construct here has, uh, you know, th there, there isn't four positions. There are now uh, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, uh, 2,000 positions, right, divided between the four different uh, worldviews. So, so that, so, the, you know, the moral of this part of the story, and I'm almost finished the second part of the story, is it's really easy to be empathetic and understand that, okay, I hold a, a natural, abstract point of view, and other people want to, you know, uh, talk in absolute terms. Uh, that's just how they roll. Um, I want to listen to their experience, not their explanation, because in their experience, we might be much closer than I realize. Uh, one, a great ally I had, and sometimes they come from unusual sources, was a, a fellow by the name of Reverend Ward Ewing. At the time of the squirmish in Toronto AA, where uh, the, the tyranny of the majority had voted out the uh, minority agnostic atheist meetings so that we, they wouldn't call us AA, they wouldn't recognize us as AA, and they wouldn't list our groups in the directory. Uh, we had a friend in the then non-alcoholic uh, chairman of uh, the board for AA General Service who was at the time, it's a four-year term, uh, Reverend Ward Ewing, uh, and they're non-alcoholic trustees. Sometimes they're people from the, uh, you know, uh, the uh, medical side of things. Sometimes they're people from uh, the corrections side of things, uh, law and order, uh, you know, judges and that sort of thing, people who work in the drug courts. Sometimes they're professionals that work in the treatment side of things. And uh, sometimes they're the sort of spiritual uh, experts that we go to. So Reverend Ward Ewing was at the time the um, uh, chairman of the board. And he was invited to speak at the very first We Agnostics and Atheists AA convention in Santa Monica, California. Everything starts in Santa Monica, California. But, uh, you know, and so we had him come and, and speak to us because he, he was one of these great ambassadors. And he wrote an article in our uh, monthly newspaper or magazine called Grapevine where he talked about in his, like, again, he's not an alcoholic. He just loves alcoholics. He's, he isn't trying to tell us how to run AA. He's just trying to help us uh, run AA. And in his uh, essay, he wrote that um, experience trumps explanation. So all of this explaining stuff that we do with our rational mind, right? I, I love this part of my mind. I'm not trying to poo-poo it, right? Long live rational thinking. But... The, the real connection with people is what our experience is. 
And one alcoholic talking to another, uh, they relate, they identify, they get together, and then uh, they start explaining it. Oh, well, uh, how'd you get sober? Oh, it was easy. I turned my will and my life over to the care of God. And uh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> the care of what? Yeah, God. Well, that's a, a myth. It's not a myth. How could I be sober today if not for, you know, and, and so you get into this uh, debate over explaining how someone, uh, you know, went from uh, the impossible promising their spouse, promising uh, their uh, uh, place of work that they were going to change, that things would be different, promising their kids, and then, you know, uh, turning up a weekend late, uh, blind, drunk again, going from that to living sober without even thinking about alcohol, with having it around you and not even being tempted, how does that happen? Well, that's, there's an experience of that that we all understand, and the explanation of it we're still fighting about. And, uh, and that just happens. We have microaggressions because cause it is, I am so attached to my little point of view, the, the, the I know what I know part of uh, the world, that you know, I can be blind to the rest of it. it it's very easy when uh, the red lights come on in the car in front of me and I have to slam on my brake you know, do I, uh, you know, am I thinking in terms of, you know, all of these other aspects of what's going on in my world? I'm just going, you idiot, <laughs> right? And always, you know, in AA they have a few slogans, uh, think, 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 uh, live and let live. One of them is easy does it. And they come in bumper stickers. And someone said, oh, do you want one of these for your car? I said, well, I'd have to put it on my dashboard. <laughs> not on my bumper, right? Because <laughs> I look like uh, a hypocrite trying to preach it to other people, right? And uh, but uh, you know, there there is a way to get along. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the sort of second chapter of the last time I was here, uh, we are getting along. You know, uh, wh what are we fighting? Our rooms are getting sort of uh, older and less hip and. You know, that sort of existential angst of, uh, you know, what does the future hold in store? Uh, but, you know, you know, that's kind of a together we can. And, and inside AA, even inside our agnostic atheist meetings, there are people, why do you put up with those religious people? Why don't we just go do our own thing? But we're better together. And uh, um, that is so hard to feel that way when you're suffering microaggressions, when someone says in a meeting, oh, you don't believe in a prayer answering sobriety granting higher power? Well, keep coming back. That, that's a microaggression. That is, uh, that is a harassment. That, but they, don't, they won't admit that they did it because they don't even know that they did it. And uh, when they say, oh, Joe, uh, the way this works is you have to admit you're powerless, right? Be willing to look for something beyond your own power. And God could and would if he were sought. And I go, <laughs> God could and would if he existed. Uh, th that's a microaggression, right? That, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm just, I, I won't admit to it either, right? 
but we, we've all got them. The, the best I can do is to try to be my own uh, police uh, and my own judge. And just, you know, just before the words come to my lips, uh, something we have learned from Al-Anon, you know, before I say it, is it true? Is it important? Will it help? And if it doesn't meet those standards, just, I can say, you know, you may be right. Thanks. I have four pages of notes this morning. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for the reminder about how complex we are and how important it is to be self-aware, especially about our worldviews, and how that will bring more understanding and compassion into our interactions. And I love the part about it being more fun, being an agitator. I thought of you know Greta's website, and her tagline is, She's irritating the church into the 20th century. So <laughs> she, she, she can claim that agitator role too. Uh, so thank you for being an agitator. Thank you for the work that you've been doing. And um, actually, why don't you come on up here so I can <laughs> talk to you instead of like this. Uh, thank you for your inspiration and your information and your call to us this week that as we interact with others that we bring those perspectives into those moments and so we bring more compassion and, and love into the world. So uh, we have a gift of thanks for you. Yay. <laughs> You're not allowed to auction this one off. No. Okay. <laughs> These are made from the former pews in our uh, setting. They're a little candle made by one of our members, John DePetty. And so he um, carves these out. It's a little candle to remind you that you are light to us and light to the world. Thank you. Well, now when I go home and Lisa goes, why do you go and do that? Look at this, Lisa. Thank you so I invite you to stand. Yes. Like the, do you mean the visitor and traveler's lunch? Yes. The, the, the visitor, yes. I thought that had already been mentioned. I'm so sorry. Yes, so I invite you to uh, stay behind and have a chat if you're able to stay. Yeah, uh, you can uh, chat with Joe and with each other about what we've just talked about. Uh, welcome to the lunch. It's on your right. And... Um, have a great week. Is there a final verse for us to sing? Yes, I thought so. Yes. May listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to 
www.westhill.net forward slash donate.